0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. Coronavirus cases rising steadily in the US. Dr. Scott Gottlieb says that at this rate, it's going to get worse before it gets better.
1: We're right now at the cusp of what's going to be exponential spread in parts of the country.
0: Big tech is gearing up for a big week of quarterly reports and testimony on the Hill. Venture capitalist Ellie Wheeler on whether regulatory scrutiny will make a difference to consumers or to revenues. Frankly, the
2: Google product is good. A lot of people are still gonna pick Google.
0: Those stories, plus a new survey found that the majority of Americans don't have a will. CNBC's Sharon Epperson.
3: Black Panther movie star Chadwick Boseman lost his long battle with cancer two months ago. Now his wife must contend with courts to determine what happens to at least part of his estate.
0: It's Monday, October 26th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins
4: right now. Good morning everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin and this morning on this Monday morning.
0: First up today on the podcast doing the math. The U.S. has reported a record number of new COVID cases with more than 83,000 new infections on both Friday and Saturday, led by outbreaks in Sunbelt states. Europe is also dealing with a resurgence. Italy has ordered bars to close early and is shutting public gyms. Spain issuing a nationwide curfew. And France is reporting a record daily rise in new infections. At this time, the United States has now reported more than 8.5 million cases of COVID-19 and more than 225,000 deaths from the virus. These numbers bring back familiar terms like slow the spread. As we look toward a fourth season of pandemic, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb is out with his latest Wall Street Journal op-ed entitled Winter is Coming, Time for a Mask Mandate. And that's where we start this new week. Here's Becky Quick.
4: Dr. Gottlieb, let's start just uh, taking a look at the markets being down this morning. It might be in part because of these uh, new lockdowns that Europe is kind of considering and actually taking into place in some uh, of these countries. We spoke with someone in France earlier today who was describing how 50,000 cases a day is much bigger than it would be here because they've got uh, maybe a fifth or a sixth of the population of what we have in the United States. So it's, it's really got them in the throes of things right now. Is that where you think we're headed at this point?
1: I do, and you're seeing hospitalizations accelerate as well in Europe. So their healthcare systems are starting to get pressed. We're going to have a very dense epidemic, and I think we're at a tipping point right now, where if we took some aggressive targeted steps right now, we could potentially forestall the worst of it. But we're not going to do that, and I understand why. There's a lot of uh, fatigue set in, and a lot of policy resistance to taking strong action ahead of you know the spread. And so we're likely to see a very dense epidemic. I think we're right now at the cusp of. What's going to be exponential spread in parts of the country is starting to see certain states and cities react because the epidemics are more dense there in Texas. You saw some action in El Paso, Utah's building field hospitals, Mm -hmm. Uh, Wisconsin's done that. So you are starting to see reaction. But I think it's going to take more before we start to see broader based policy changes that are going to ultimately turn the tide on the spread.
4: There was a huge political dust storm over the weekend when Mark Meadows said that we can't control this virus. There was pushback not only from Joe Biden, but also from some Republican senators as well. What, what is this in terms of linguistics? What can we do? What should we do? How would you describe and get in the middle of that fray?
1: Well, look, I think the experience in the South, the governors in the South arguably reacted late, but they ultimately took policy steps. They took targeted mitigation. You saw them closing bars, restaurants. Um, congregate settings like that they didn't shut they didn't have a broad-based stay-at-home order or shut down all business activity you saw people pull back google mobility data really started to decline once the epidemic got dense and then you started to see mask mandates get put in place and adherence to masking started to increase and that combined with a lot of spread in the south so you did have a higher positivity rate and there was pretty diffuse spread so the rate of transfer started to decline That combination was enough to turn the tide in those epidemics. I think that there is a a recipe where you can allow the economy to function. You allow businesses to stay open, but you take targeted mitigation steps to close certain venues or put in place curfews to close bars um, where you know there's going to be a lot of spread. You ask people to wear masks and you can impose a mandate without imposing penalties, at least on a first offense. You can ask businesses to enforce mask requirements in indoor congregate settings. And then you appeal to the public. To be more judicious about what they do instead of going shopping three times a week you do it once if you see mobility data start to decline you know that's a pretty good indication that that there's some change in behavior that's going to have an effect on continued spread we have one more cycle to get through with this i know people are exhausted it's been very hard on families and on individuals on businesses especially but we really have two or three months of the acute phase of this pandemic to get through this is going to be the hardest phase probably um, so we need to try to pull together and see what we can do to try to control the spread so health care systems don't become overwhelmed. Because once they do, once we reach that breaking point, the policy action that we're going to need to take is going to be more aggressive, unfortunately, than if we had did some things up front.
5: Uh, doctor, I have two questions for you. One relates to masks. Um, the reporter that we were speaking to in France, in Paris, was saying that they have a, a mandate to wear masks, and yet uh, the numbers continue to rise there. What do you ascribe that to?
1: Well, I don't know what their adherence looks like there. I know masks are debatable over in Europe, just like they've become a contentious issue here in the U.S. Remember, the masks are designed primarily to prevent people who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic from spreading the virus. So we know that if you have a mask on and you're contagious, but you don't know you're contagious, you don't yet have symptoms, you're less likely to dispel the kind of respiratory droplets that can cause other people around you to become infected. But the masks can also protect you, but in that case, if you want to derive protection from the masks, uh, you need to be wearing a higher quality mask. Cloth masks are about ten to thirty percent protective. If you're wearing a cotton mask, thickness matters, and cotton masks with uh, polyester embedded in them are going to be more protective. Surgical masks, level two or level three procedure masks, or surgical masks, are going to be about sixty percent protective, and an N95 mask, depending on how well you're wearing, is going to be ninety percent protective or better. So if you want to derive protection from other individuals, you need to wear a higher quality mask. It's a shame that we're at a point in this epidemic where we still don't have enough N95 masks to give them to high risk individuals, people who are essential workers, Um, but they are accessible in the consumer chain. They're just pricey.
5: Doctor, my other question is you've mentioned several times today and in the past uh, that when it comes to this second or third wave that we're now talking about, that we still have two to three more months to go. We're about to enter November. Why is it only two or three more months? Is that because you're, you're convinced that we have the vaccine and therapeutics on the other side? Is that because it will burn itself out? What do you, what, what's the, the, the thinking in terms of the timing?
1: Well, it's not the vaccine. I don't think we're going to have a vaccine or a therapeutic that's going to really change the contours of what we're entering into right now. It's partly a combination of a lot of people are going to get infected, and so it will, to some degree, burn itself out. But also, as you get mounting levels of infection, you do get a policy response and you get a consumer response. So once the epidemics get dense enough in certain cities, people will stop going out. They will stop going to bars and restaurants. They're going to be more judicious about congregate settings they're going to wear masks more aggressively and that's what we saw in the south so there is a a a natural life cycle if you will to an epidemic as it sweeps through a population and so we're likely to see that's what happened in the spring it's what happened in the summer when it became epidemic in the south we're likely to see the same thing it happens in the in the flu season as well where there is a peak uh, the virus eventually peaks out and then we come down the epidemic curve the less we take mitigation steps the less we do to try to prevent spread the more acute that phase is going to be, the shorter it's going to be, but also the sharper it's going to be, and the more our healthcare systems are going to get pressed.
6: Scott, we, we actually, we, I don't know if I'd call it great fanfare, but we did talk about those two uh, pauses in the, in the vaccine trials with a lot of, and we gave a lot of uh, uh, time to that. So both of them have been restarted at this point. Are we back to full force on, on what is it, four or five, at, at the testing going on? Should we, shouldn't we mention that or at least be positive about that or, or no? The AstraZeneca and the J&J trials were restarted. We J&J could move quickly because it's
1: a single-dose vaccine. The two vaccines that are the furthest along that should, hopefully, if everything goes well and the trials read out and they're positive, uh, could be available in 2020 on a limited basis So the Pfizer vaccine, I'm on the board of Pfizer, and the Moderna vaccine. But the, the challenge there is that even if those vaccines become available this year, it will be later in the year. And remember, there are two-dose vaccines and then you have to wait a week or two after your second dose until the immunity kicks in. So you're not going to look at that first tranche of patients, which are going to be elderly patients and health care workers, actually having protective immunity from those vaccines until right. probably but February be- of 2021, right. maybe March.
6: But it's better than paused. Anyway, I just, there's a lot of caveats. The other thing, Scott, so is it a delay we're seeing now in deaths that we saw before with, you know, it's slow, the hospitals, you know, cases move up, hospitalizations move up. And then, unfortunately, we, we see deaths move up. Or are therapeutics and, and just, they, they, I guess, knowing more about how to deal with the disease, will that keep us below previous mortality rates? Is there anything positive there? Or we're just waiting for the deaths to catch yeah. up with the hospitalizations?
1: Well, the deaths are going to start to rise, but the antibody drugs should be coming on the market. They're going to have an effect. We've seen dramatic gains in in hospital mortality. It's been cut at least in half. The vaccines are going to be available in 2021. I think this I've said all along, I think the acute phase of this is largely a 2020 event. We have two or three more months to go, and I think they're going to be difficult months. But you are going to see the crude mortality go down. Now, the challenge is going to be that there could be a lot more infection heading into the fall and the winter. So even though we're doing a much better job preserving life, death, the, the, the death rate, the number of deaths is going to go above 1,000 on a seven-day moving average for certain just because the number of infections are higher. We're not feeling it that much right now. It doesn't feel like it did in the spring or the summer because the... Um, epidemics aren't isolated in one region. They're diffuse across the country. So every part of the country has a medium amount of infection right now instead of one part of the country really being inundated with infection, with the exception of places like Wisconsin and Utah, certain states, South Dakota, North Dakota. But The other states are going to catch up. They're a little bit in the early phase of this, but you're going to see pretty diffuse infection across the country. And a lot of places are going to reach very high levels of infection. That's that's what it looks like. um, And that's why this is probably going to be a difficult couple of months.
4: Hey, Scott, one thing we didn't mention yet this morning that I think is kind of important is an FT story talking about the Oxford vaccine. They've been testing it in older individuals, which is obviously pretty important. Um, Not all the vaccines are being tested in older people, but that's the population that hits the hardest. What they found is that there's a robust immune response to that vaccine. And I I guess that's good news. They still have to wait to make sure that it's safe and effective. But you want to make sure you were able to get that sort of response, right?
1: Yeah, and the Phase one, phase two data on all the vaccines showed that it was generating a a robust response in older individuals, not as robust as in younger individuals. But the presumption is enough antibody production to offer protective immunity. We should be turning over the cards on these pivotal trials. You know, at some point this month, there should be data accruing. So we're going to get a pretty good indication how well these vaccines work. I think there's a lot of expectation they will work. I'm certainly optimistic, but we're not going to know until we ultimately unblind these trials just how effective they are.
4: Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. Always good to see you. And uh, we appreciate that rundown on this Monday morning. There's a lot of news over the weekend to try and catch up on.
1: Thanks a lot.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, the force of big tech, CEO of the advertising platform
7: Taboola. I compare it to Jedi and Darth Vader. We have no problem with power. We have a problem with being evil. So when I look at companies and like Google and Facebook in the past when you know looking at some of these behaviors I do think there's a lot of goodness that can come from regulation we'll be right back
3: Hello I'm Laura Castleton US Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors Is a brighter future possible At Janice Henderson we think it is For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com.
0: This is Squawk Pod from CNBC with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew.
5: Welcome back to Squawk Box. Uh, big tech gearing up for a very big week. Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, Apple, and Google parent. Alphabet, they're all reporting their quarterly results this week. Plus, the CEOs of Alphabet, Twitter, and Facebook are scheduled to testify before the Senate Commerce Committee on Wednesday to examine their content liability shield known as Section 230. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Ellie Wheeler, partner at venture capital firm Graycroft. Uh, Ellie, good morning to you. Um, I don't know which side we should take of this. Let's take earnings first, because I think there's a big question as to what they're going to look like. And frankly, uh, whether they're sustainable, meaning there's been a lot of growth in these companies, at least of the stock price during this period, and whether you think that looks sustainable to you.
2: Sure. Um, Thanks for having me. It's going to be a busy week. Um, I mean, I think that you're going to continue to see Amazon and Netflix um, fly right. I mean, for fairly obvious reasons, these companies were were benefited pretty tremendously uh, by the situation that we're in. Um, Google's obviously priced a little bit more cautiously um, given some of the news that has come out over the past few months. Um, but in terms of sustainability. Um, even things like Netflix, I mean, that subscriber growth can't be sustainable. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to perform extremely well. Um, I think most things that people have thought coming into to all of this a few quarters ago have generally been wrong. And these stocks have continued to do extremely well.
5: The other question revolves really, and, and we'll see it with uh, Google later this week, but uh, with Google and the lawsuit that the Department of uh, Justice has brought against them, And what the implications are for Apple in terms of services revenue, in large part because Google is paying Apple billions of dollars annually uh, for that default search right, effectively when you go on an Apple device, an iPhone, the default search is Google, and whether you think that gets taken away, uh, what that means, obviously, for an alphabet on one side in terms of the traffic and all the revenue that generates, and on the other side, the revenue that it also generates for an Apple.
2: Yeah, it's, it's funny. It just harkens back 20 years uh, when we were having similar conversations. But um, I think that it, obviously it depends. It's going to be a big part of um, what they talk about and how they discuss this lawsuit, um, because they, they are paying that. Um, I think you could see a scenario where instead uh, the consumer gets a choice box. And frankly, the Google product is good. A lot of people are still going to pick Google. Um, so, you know, we'll see how that goes. I think, yeah, there is the possibility that that goes away. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure that that tanks uh, in any way uh, Google's traffic, given that it is... Uh, except for a handful of categories that are, are fairly overrun by SEO. Um, Google overall is still a great experience for the user, and I think you'll end up seeing a lot of consumers pick it. Uh, will that hit Apple well, in, the, in the short term? Of course.
5: I want to bring in another voice to this conversation, Ellie, right now to discuss the battle between the DOJ and big tech, which is Adam Singola. Um, he's the CEO of uh, Content Discovery and Native Advertising Platform, Kabula, it's, it's great to see you, Adam. Help us, though, understand you're watching this whole thing play out. Do you think that if Apple was not paying, for example, for, for Google to be the default search engine and somehow installed Bing instead, if that's what you think would happen, uh, that users would
7: still migrate to Google or they wouldn't? I'm not sure most people are truly aware of what's the default. Um, so I think that, you know, being a default is a very important um, point of contact and Canvas for, for whoever gets it. So, but let me ask you about that
5: because I, for example, um, am a Google Maps guy. I've always liked Google Maps more than I like Apple Maps. As you know, uh, Apple Maps is pre-installed on the iPhone. I have installed Google Maps. I actually think if you look at the numbers, the re- there is a remarkable number of people who have installed Google Maps and use that instead of, of Apple Maps. So, does
7: it really matter? Well, I think, I think I think it matters. You're right though, when it comes to a consumer app like Waze or Google Maps or things of that nature, People get emotionally connected. When it comes to default experiences such as typing something in your browser and just go to a search page, sometimes even feeling lucky and go straight to the page, I feel like most people are not necessarily aware of you know what experience is behind that browser. If you ask my mom, does she know if the default browser on their iPhone is Google or not, I don't think she would know the difference. So I do think that whoever gets that default, you know, it's a big premium on getting access to consumers, and it's a big win for whoever gets it. I don't think we'll see the same experience as we do with Google Maps or Waze or or things of that nature. And do you think it would change the? So you think it would change the
5: equation if 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 Google was blocked from paying for that right? Do you think if that was the case, that everybody should be blocked from that right? Meaning nobody should be allowed allowed to pay for uh, pay for effectively a default position in the same way Google would argue that Coca-Cola might pay for a, a better position on the shelf of the supermarket?
7: Look, I mean, I, I don't think there's a problem necessarily with the payment or the, the business model. I think that in general, and, and you know, I also always say, and I told you this last time, and I'm no expert in, in, in legal, so I don't know what's a good remedy around these things, but it's not about size. It's about behavior, right? So what, what really bothers us is is you know how people um, you know behave? What type of business model do they create? And is it pro competition or not? compare uh, compared to Jedi and Darth Vader, we have no problem with power. We have a problem with being evil. So when I look at companies like Google and Facebook in the past, when you know looking at some of these behaviors, when Google surfaces news on their search page, which prevents people from going to the website, it's not it's not good. When Facebook blocks people from going to the website because they host it in the instant article. That's not good. So I do think there's a lot of goodness that can come from regulation with regards to measurement, transparency, all those things. Um, but so it's just about side. It's about um, the behavior of those companies.
5: Ellie, I, where do you land on this? And one of the things that I can't figure out is I, I think of myself the immediate ramification, if the Department of Justice was successful in their case against Alphabet, uh, is ultimately actually that... It would cost the customer, meaning that the Apple phone ostensibly would ultimately cost more, not less. That's an interesting point. I don't think that
2: that's necessarily how it would flow through. Like many things, it it would depend here on how it's actually implemented. So, what is that decision? Um, you know, as you pointed out, is it a default, some other search engine, or is it instead, you know, the consumer being prompted from a list that slight difference, seemingly, is actually a huge difference, um, and might make that behavior a little bit more akin to an Apple Maps, Google Maps situation, but generally, um, I tend to agree with that, Um, because if you're going down that pathway um, and arguing against these payments, I think it's a little bit harder to argue that other people can pay for it, Um, and so I think perhaps it goes away entirely.
5: Ellie, let me ask you another question. It's about 230 which is going to become, which will be the center of this hearing this week. Um, and, and I've struggled to understand the, the thought process. You have right now Republicans on one side saying that there's, they're seeing articles and things that they think um, are being censored. And, and, and they want to deal with 230 but 230 would create liability which I would think would make, would, would create more censorship, not less. And then you have Democrats effectively saying the opposite, but also arguing for the same thing. Can you explain it?
2: I wish I could. It, both sides don't like it. That's the only thing that I think uh, you know we can all see. Neither side likes it, but they certainly aren't aligned on what they want to see. Um, so I actually think the companies, to some degree, might even agree. Right? I'm not sure that they want to be the free speech police either. Um, but what we do need are guidelines of some sort, um, all around what actually constitutes harmful content such that people can start to implement it. We've had this era where private companies have been um, have needed to act like governmental agencies, and they've not done it well and we shouldn't have expected that they would. Um, you know, there's a whole range of outcomes we could have here, obviously. Um, But I think it will ultimately land with some sort of framework, some sort of guideline around what they should be doing. Um, Because right now, the free-for-all where each company chooses and then doesn't even enforce it uh, particularly consistently isn't something that's sustainable. Uh, But both sides don't like it. I don't think big tech likes it. Um, But, you know, all their all their reasonings, why they don't like it, what they want to see happen, all of that differs. And I do think we'll start to see some guardrails.
5: Adam, uh, do you think that breaking up the companies would would have an impact on 230? I mean, do you think that do you think they're related at all? Uh, I happen not to think that they're related at all and that there is a lot of different issues that people are going after tech for. But the idea of breaking them up in 230
7: to me seemed like two very different ideas. I, I agree. I, I, what really bothers us, let's, let's break this down. What bothers us is that, because we're pro-innovation, we're pro-technology, we're pro-democracy, pro so we have no problem with 230 so long that there's a good separation between being technology agnostic platform to the editorial voice that we want to leave for the open web and journalism. Right? So what we saw with the New York Post story um, just recently and how much attention it got, because we were all confused whether these tech platforms are truly agnostic. Are they making those decisions with a moderation team, church and state type relationship? Or do we see some involvement from you know, Dorsey and Zach? Do we see management getting involved? And if they do get involved, which we don't know the answer, that makes them an editorial organization. Then it taps into section 230, that is a problem. So I think, you know, like the famous saying, you know it's porn when you see it. We just don't know. We don't know who makes those decisions. We have no transparency into the process. So from my perspective, the first question I would ask in the hearing is explain to me the process from the beginning to the end of how you make those decisions.
5: Okay. Uh, Adam and Ellie, we appreciate uh, your time and perspective this morning. Thanks. Thank Thank you.
0: Coming up, Black Panther star Chadwick Boseman died without a will. Why you should have an estate plan at any age. Next on
3: Squat Pod. The bottom line is you got to do it. It's such an important thing that you can actually control.
8: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
4: You are listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. As coronavirus cases and death tolls surge once again in parts of the country, a dilemma facing millions of Americans is what will happen to their lives and their legacies if they don't have a will and other estate planning documents. CNBC senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson tells us how the family of a famous movie actor is now trying to figure that out.
3: Black Panther movie star Chadwick Boseman lost his long battle with cancer two months ago. Now his wife must contend with courts to determine what happens to at least part of his estate. A new survey shows the majority of Americans, 62%, don't have a will. And 27% of those who do said they got it because they were afraid of death or serious illness related to COVID-19. If you're critically ill, as this attorney points out, a will is not the only key document you'll need.
6: No matter how much or how little you're worth, you all need a health care power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, durable power of attorney and other financial directives to make sure that your wishes are carried out if you become incapacitated, but don't necessarily pass away right away.
3: Now, the cost of these documents can vary widely. Having an attorney create a comprehensive estate plan could cost several thousand dollars, but you can also go online and do a basic will for less
4: than 100 bucks. Becky? Sharon, these are uh, big questions that a lot of people face, but if you think you really are ready to have a basic will, what what do you need to have ready? What documents? What thought process? Well, the thought process is key. You have to figure out
3: who you want to be doing key things in your life. Who do you want to have as your beneficiaries? Who do you want to be the executor of the will to decide where to help execute where things are going to go? Who do you want as guardians for your children? And then you want to make some specific arrangements about where assets are placed and where they should go. So all of those things are things to think about, talk about, write down and talk to the people that you want to give these designations to to make sure that they're equipped with knowing how to do it, too. Where can you go if you want to get some legal help to try and get an estate planning done? Well, the best place to go is to talk to your family, friends, colleagues, and your financial advisor and get some recommendations perhaps from them on who they may have used as an estate planning attorney. There are also a couple of organizations, traders organizations for estate planning attorneys, like the American Council for Trust and Estate Councils, as well as looking at the National Association for Estate Planners. Those are two organizations that you can look at. We have a lot more information about this on cnbc.com slash invest in you places that you can go. The bottom line is, Becky, you got to do it. It's such an important thing that you can actually control.
4: It is. It's hard to make decisions like that, but it's even harder if you don't make them. Um, Sharon, I know it's something a lot of people are thinking about, so thank you. It's great to see you this morning.
0: That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, share this podcast with a friend or leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. On Twitter, we're at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
8: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof-of-delivery,